0: Recently, many things are happening in the markets Rising bond yields, the sound of inflation risk Stock market fluctuations, Bitcoin taking centre stage in the media cycle So, so many things to talk about So how should we view all these things while managing our investment portfolios? Will the rise of all things digital change the way we invest? How should we embrace all these dynamism out there? We will be covering a lot today while we, you know, just took a break last week So welcome! Welcome to another Tuesday TFC session In this series, we hope to bring on in interesting, relevant people To help us learn better from various perspectives Life is not always about learning from people that you already agree with Perspectives shake around the thinker. So, In our pursuit of the life we love for managing our finances Well, our guest for today is a seasoned investor That is staying firm that passive investing with low fees Is the way forward for many He has interesting takes on the many things that's going on in the market But that does not drastically change his investment strategy Believing in winning the war Rather than focusing on the many small battles, while there are many ways to invest today, he's staying old school, buying assets to generate cash flow to him. There is a science, and it's logical. We have with us today founder of one of the leading mobile advisors in the B two B space today. Welcome, Titus from Auto Wealth.
1: You know, you guys are doing the whole very macro, you know, macro-driven kind of thematic way of investing. Could you just kind of share with us a little bit more, like what is your strategy to do that?
2: Yeah, so we want to make sure that our investment strategy is simple and easy to understand because at the end of the day, these are your hard-earned savings, right? You want to make sure you know what's going on, then that gives you more comfort, more confidence during your investment journey. So that's what we are trying to do. And uh, in simple English, what we are, tr- we are what, <laughs> yeah, what is our investment strategy? English, right? Yes, yes. Um, today, we try to track the global stock index. In this case, the MSCI All Country World Index. So whatever the index holds, you actually hold the same. So if you throw a stone and you hit a listed company, that's a 85% chance that you
1: actually own a piece of it. Mm. So in, in that sense, why go for that? broadly like diversified strategy because recently there's been a little bit of discussion online you know about like how do you even like you know beat the market in that sense
2: yeah so for us we focus a lot on uh asset allocation Mm -hmm. to derive returns we focus less on market timing and we do not do anything about uh stock selection yeah so asset allocation means basically uh, if you want to set aside a certain percentage of your capital investing into US stocks, how much is that percentage? So that allocation percentage is what we mean by asset allocation. Yeah. So what we are trying to do here is to focus on the big picture. If certain regions do well, your portfolio does well. So there's no need for you, you know, to agonize over, you know, sometimes why. DBS is going up, but why not UOB, which is the one you're holding? Yeah, and why, you know, in certain timing, Tesla keeps going up, but the moment you start investing, it starts crashing down on you. Yeah, so we want to avoid that kind of uh, agony. So we focus on the big picture
1: by just diversifying across the whole world. Mm, Okay, so the very big slow game in that sense. Well... You, if you come to think of it from our
2: investment track record, uh, we have been delivering uh, a good 8-9% for people belonging to the higher risk group. So I don't really think that's very slow. Mm-hmm. You know, If you compare to your fixed deposits, your bank savings, you know, which you will never get there.
1: Yeah, for sure. And in that sense, about the way you guys are doing it, it's very macro-driven, very broad-based. So then, are you very concerned about the endless money supply that's coming into the picture, you know, like countries are just printing and spending. You know, of course, it's a lot more complex than what people think as, you know, like all the trillion dollar stimulus is not as simplistic as really just throwing money out there. But I want to hear your thoughts about like, are you concerned about, you know, that kind of stimulus numbers? The central banks are doing a lot of monetary easing, uh, meaning
2: printing money, increasing money supply. And what they are trying to achieve here is to prop up inflation and to prop up economic growth. So the intent is uh, well thought of. Mm. And we don't think inflation is uh, necessarily a bad thing. If we have, for example, uh, close to but below 2% inflation, that's the best uh, in economics terms. So Why? Why is that the best? Because you want to make sure that you know the corporates that produces that goods and services you know, they can increase their prices year on year, but increase it at a moderate pace. Because the moment they can increase their prices, you know, they make more profits, they can employ more people, and then more people earn more income, and then you continue to spend again. So that's a very positive reinforcing uh, economic cycle. Yeah. Uh, But whereas, if you have deflation, which means year on year, the goods gets cheaper and cheaper, what people are going to do is to delay their purchases. This is what's happening in Japan, right? Mm. You know, for example, if you want to buy uh, Japanese electronics, if you choose to delay it by one year, you get it cheaper. So many people keep <laughs> delaying their purchases and the economy <laughs> can never get back on track.
1: Mm. Can you help us elaborate a little bit more about what's happened in Japan? Right? Because over the past 30 years, there's a whole deflation cycle in Japan, right? <laughs> yeah, so I, I want to kind of hear your, your viewpoint on this, you know?
2: Yeah, so this has been the case for uh, a couple of decades. And it has kind of etched into people's mindset. You know, and mindset are diff- very difficult to change. So everybody knows that Japan is in a deflation cycle and everybody you know, refuse to spend that much. Uh, the Japanese likes to save a lot, a lot of money. So it is actually a professional business you know, to, to just take in old goods, you know, take in your karanguni uh, stuff that people throw away. And you often find that if you cut up the mattresses, if you cut up the pillows, sometimes the Japanese old people, they, they bury their, their cash inside the pillows <laughs> and they forget about it, you know, and they pass on. So it's, it's actually a very lucrative business, you know, taking in all this uh, uh, trash and for all you know, you'll find gold
1: within mm, the trash. Mm.
2: Yeah, so that's, that's really the mindset of Japanese people today.
1: So are, are you trying to tell us that the, economy, the Japanese economy is shrinking? Uh, well, in a way, um, the rest of the world is moving far ahead.
2: And we are growing each year. And uh, Japan, on the other hand, is not growing as fast as they want. Mm. And as fast as their potential can be mm. because of the situation on the ground.
1: And why do you think they have potential to grow?
2: Well, if you look at many of our technologies today, Japan is still one of the leading uh, technology players. Uh, For example, if you like gaming, uh, (laughs) Sony PlayStation is developed by Japan.
1: Ooh, Nintendo. Yeah, yeah, Nintendo
2: (laughs) as well. Yeah. Mm. So um, there are many different areas where, you know, the Japanese are very strong at. Yeah, mm. so I don't think that's going to change. But however, if you look at the overall economy, there are many other sectors, you know, that uh, they are dropping back mm. from uh, the global competition.
1: Mm. And and in that sense, within the Asia space, right? If if Japan is not is is not growing as fast, and then you know the rival. You know, okay, maybe not rival, but the other guy, the, you know, the neighbor, right? China is oh, growing China, like, yes, yes. neighbor. <laughs> China, China <laughs> is going like crazy, like on fire. Or at least that's what people see on the surface, right? GDP is growing and growing, and growing. And you know? also, and it's like the 2021 hot take kind of thing, right? Will China become the next big thing? You know? or actually, it's been around for a long time, like this this question of will China become the next big thing? You know, and so, so what is your take on that? Because it does not really reflect on. You know, at at least from my homework with your portfolios, it doesn't really reflect. that kind of like, oh, we're very aggressive on China. You know, you guys are just, it doesn't feel that way. So I want to hear your perspective.
2: Yes, uh, we really love China and we really love the Chinese economy (laughs) and the companies. Woo, China! (laughs) Yeah, but however, as an investment asset class, we are not uh, allocating a huge chunk of our capital towards China. Uh, There are multiple reasons why this is so. Today, if you look at the Chinese stock exchange, you know there's the A shares and the B shares, which most people, most foreigners, wouldn't be able to invest in. You know there's only H shares that's listed on the Hong Kong stock exchange, whereby it's freely tradable. So it is a very restricted market in China, uh, and they restrict this for good reason. You know the Chinese government doesn't want foreigners to take control of their key industries at a too premature stage. You know, they want to make sure they grow to a giant status yeah, before they gradually open up their economy. Yeah, so it is very controlled. And the same way how, you know, the Chinese government likes to control every single thing in their economy, right? You know, when N financial grows too big, they have to rein you back. When Tencent grows too big, again, they got to pull you back a little bit. yeah.
1: So how So how does that then discount into your investment strategy? So the global
2: index provider, uh, the most well-established one is MSCI. Uh, so MSCI, um, because of these restrictions on the trading of A shares and B shares, their allocation to China within the uh, MSCI All-Country World Index is pretty small. So it reflects the kind of restriction that China have. Uh, so it's, it's a reflection of reality. Yeah. Um, so while they are slowly opening up, so you can see that the Chinese weightage is slowly increasing, you know, now I think close to 4%. Yeah, but it's still not a reflection of the second largest economy in the world, Mm -hmm. but we are gradually getting there as the Chinese government continues to open up. So from our investment perspective, we also take pace with what is developing in China, you know, this gradual opening up.
1: Mm, which which means that you guys are not trying to jump the gun. You're not trying to like, you know, be overweight, you know, like own more of China.
2: Yes, because even if we try to do so, we can only do so through the head shares. Mm. And the head shares doesn't represent the entire economy in China. It's, it's not a realistic representation. Um, so if you want, you know, your Chinese internet companies, not everybody has, has a head shares trader.
1: And if we bring that back into you know, the future of, of the world, right? Where, where economy is very digital and things go like everything is online, right? So then if we're talking about China opening up in this process and there's this whole discuss about the digital yuan, you know, what, what is your, your take on, on this? Um, how will this change, you know, the global financial space?
2: Yeah, so China is is growing and influenced. So that's something which we are very sure of, um, but from an investment perspective, we do not only focus on regions. We also focus a lot about the industries that are emerging. For example, today you have fintech, you have e-commerce and the likes of that. And these industries could be expressed in our investment views. You know, uh, recently, we have a new offering called AutoWealth Blast where, for example, we have one portfolio called the future of digital economy, mm-hmm. where we focus a lot of the allocation on fintech, internet companies, e-commerce, and the emerging markets that does all these few industries. We also have, for example, the future 2050 portfolio that focus on technology, um, which reinvents itself from time to time, in the past it used to be Dell, it used to be HP, these are the tech giants. <laughs> yeah. Today nobody remembers about those companies, right? Who yeah. still
1: use Dell? Who still use HP? <laughs> uh,
2: yes. Yeah. Today it's mm. like Apple, mm. you mm. know, and we are no longer that much focused about hardware. We are looking a lot about software as a service. Mm. Yeah. So you have many companies like Salesforce is coming up, you know, and displacing, you know, the the old incumbents. Yeah, so these are some of those industries that we like, uh, as well as healthcare, because aging population is a global macro trend across both the developed economy as well as the emerging markets. So whether it be Japan, which we all know is a growing population, or Singapore, which is already happening, we also see that China is also facing the same issue. Mm. So healthcare is going to benefit a lot from this global macro trend. Yeah, so another perspective I want to share is to focus on the emerging industries because if you get those right, you get a lot, a lot
1: of returns. Mm, What are some of these uh, emerging industries?
2: Yeah, so I've shared uh, fintech, I've shared Mm. uh, internet companies, e-commerce. I also like um, the future of computing. Like cloud? Yes, cloud as a service, Mm. yeah. Um, as well as robotics, you know mm. the future of industries.
1: Mm, but yeah. a lot of these theme funds, right? A lot of these thematic ideas, right? They, they tend to fall into this hype cycle, you know. Where by the time the ETF is out, right, you know the underlying equity has already been bid up like crazy, right? It takes about six months for, a theme, for for an ETF to get to get out of the gate, right? After inception, after ideation, okay, we're gonna do this. Six months down, then they will come out the gate. By then, it's already been bid up you know, a lot of the underlying asset class. Are you concerned about, you know, that kind of that kind of reality?
2: Yes. So you are absolutely right. Uh, if we look at fintech as an industry, Woohoo. fintech has <laughs> really started, you know, way long back. You know, 10 years ago, we have the first robo-advisor in the US, you know, and if you look at payments, e-payments, you know, that took place in China way, way long back. Mm. Yeah. But however if you look at the investment instruments where we can invest in these emerging industries, you know, the ETS, like your ARK Invest, that are developed by ARK Invest, you know, they only came out in the last few years. Yeah. And they only gather pace in the last one year or so. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a little bit lagging in nature. Mm. um, And you will see a lot of overhype from time to time. So to... Rectify uh, or to resolve such hypes, right? Uh, We need to focus on the long run. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure that whichever industries that we have identified, you know, there are industries that can continue growing at a very fast pace for at least five, 10 years kind of time frame, Mm -hmm. You know, so that as long as they continue growing, the hype will eventually become reality and then we will continue growing healthily
1: again. Okay, help us understand a little bit like what is considered a fast pace? 20%, 30%, 20%, 30%, right? What is the overall market growth, you know, that is considered fast?
2: Yes. So uh, I, will sh- I will share with you this uh, company, which today I think a lot of people will be well aware of, is this uh, company called Tencent. Okay. So Tencent mm-hmm. runs your WeChat, mm-hmm. you know. And QQ. Yes, QQ. Mm-hmm. And their core business is actually in gaming. Yeah, so long time back I started investing in Tencent. The, the ticker of Tencent is listed on Hong Kong Stock Exchange. The ticker is 700 HK, and at the first time when I first invested in Tencent, they were trading at like hundred over dollars Hong Kong dollars. Okay, and I started making like thirty percent profits year on year in, in terms of their earnings it is also very fast, like growing at a pace of 30% year on year and persistently for a number of years. So at many points in time, you know, I question myself, can these be sustainable? You know, they have been growing, they have doubled. Can they continue doubling? Yeah. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as, as a personal investor, I've exited those positions, you know, quite early, um, almost uh i think just below 200 hong kong dollars and look at where tencent is today mm-hmm. you know i've missed out the subsequent growth so it's unimaginable how these industries can continue to grow you know as they gather pace because you must remember that uh china as a market is extremely extremely huge you're talking about you know more than 1 billion people and more than 1 billion people consuming your goods and services. So when they started off in a particular region or province in China, and they continue to grow to other province, you know, it's going to take time. So this growth is going to be multi-year,
1: sometimes even multi-decades. Nice, nice. And then in in that sense of the pursuit of growth, right? Can you just kind of help us paint a picture of like, how do you see these companies keep growing and keep innovating, right? Because a lot of people are saying like, oh, we're gonna grow, but honestly, thirty percent growth, right, is quite crazy. Like, that's not happen all the time. Okay, five years, ten years is already quite nuts. Right? but but how do these companies or how do these sectors keep on, you know, keeping up with something like that? Yeah. So it's very difficult
2: to identify, you know, a company that can persistently grow like Tencent mm. You know, there's there's only that few names, right? Yeah, I can do that and. It's today that we have perfect hindsight that yes. we see Tencent and we see Alibaba.
1: Yes, yes, so everybody keeps saying Amazon, Microsoft, I was like, dude, that already happened, right? <laughs> Just yes. Tell me how to pick yes. the next guy. Yes. Yeah. So our strategy has always been, you know,
2: um, don't do your stock picking. There's no point trying to fight all these small battles. All you need to do is to focus on the big picture mm. and win the war. Mm. Yeah. So when we invest in such emerging industries, we tend to buy ETFs that covers the entire industry. Mm. So that, you know, even if you pick, you know, eight correct and you have two wrong, overall you are making good good returns mm. on it.
0: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: And in, in that sense of being broad based, right, and, and you know, Going out there and picking ETFs rather than companies itself, you know, how do you then select your ETFs? Then you know because um, just to put it very bluntly, right? Like every fun house, every ETF house is <laughs> creating like very similar ETFs, right? Other than the very niche themes out there, many people are very similar. So how do you like kind of know who to choose?
2: Just to give you an idea of how many ETFs there are today, <laughs> traded and listed. Uh, uh, uh across all the global exchanges, there's more than 10,000 ETFs. Wow, crazy. And, you know, they are growing day by day. Mm, Okay, mm. so it is quite impossible for a human to look through that 10,000 over an increasing uh, number of ETFs. So we use advanced software to analyze them, you know, using computer systems. And we look at many different factors, including how much of diversification effect they have. So that's one um, we also look at the reputation of the ETF provider. Mm. Is this, you know, one of the top five ETF providers or is this, you know, a ETF provider which maybe not everyone had heard about? Mm. We also look at the ETF fund size as
1: a representation of their stability. So what is the okay fund size? Um... More than one billion dollars. Okay, so yeah. it's a liquidity, it's a liquidity kind of thing.
2: Yes. So the other thing we look at is also the daily liquidity mm. because we want to make sure that, uh, in unforeseen circumstances where markets are shaky, and for some reason you need to cash out, you know, you can get out at a good price mm. because it's liquid.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And we also look at the bid ask spread to make sure that you know you can get out at a reasonable bid ask spread as well as uh, expense ratio. Hey, so Help
1: me understand why it's a beta spread.
2: So, uh, yeah. So, every day when you look at an mm-hmm. exchange, right? Learning there's, new things yeah. every day, yes. <laughs> there's, there's a pair of prices. You have the guys who wants to buy it. So, that will be the bid price. And then you have the guys who want to sell it. That's the ask price. Yeah. So, typically, you know, the bid-ask spread for a very liquid uh stock will be one bid, one tick. Okay, mm-hmm. so... Um, so, for 0.01, example, is it? Yes, 0.01 for anything that's traded, you know, more than $1, mm. it should be about 0.01. Yeah. So you want to make sure that the bid and the ask is only separated by 0.01 mm. and not 0.03 mm. because uh, there are some stocks, you know, where the, the liquidity is very thin, then you would see very wide bid ask spread. Mm. So you got to force yourself, if you want to sell it, you know, right away, and you need the cash right away, right? You can't afford to wait. Then you have to sell it at a bid price, and you lose
1: three ticks zero point zero three mm. in the process. Mm. Yeah, so that's not good. So that's bid ask spread, right? For you guys yeah. out there listening, that's cool stuff. And then, okay, I've uh, since we're talking so much about ETFs, right? I've this one very interesting question that you know, to to date, right? I cannot really kind of factor this thing because in an ETF it's a basket of companies or a basket of, you know, um, whatever it is, right? It's, it's a compounded product in that sense, right? But then how is that ETF priced? You know, is, are we looking at a market mechanism, you know, where the market then decides, okay, this ETF is worth this price or is there some sort of, you know, correlation with the underlying asset basket?
2: Yes, naturally, it, it needs to be anchored to the NAV, NAV stands for net asset value of the ETF itself. So take, for example, if this ETF, you know, holds Facebook, uh, it holds uh, some other tech stocks, then the value of the ETF would be what is the total market value value of the holdings that it holds in Facebook and other tech stocks mm. yeah so that must be the anchor value and while there may be a little bit of deviation from the NAV by and large when a deviation gets too huge people will arbitrage on it mm. yeah so for example if the value of the the NAV value is you know uh $100 mm. but the exchange is trading at ninety ninety nine dollars, then I will arbitrage and buy it off the exchange. Something that's worth hundred dollars for ninety nine dollars. Mm. Yeah, so I make a one dollar
1: gain. Okay, yeah. so so the market is so efficient that you don't really see that kind of price difference. Yes. Okay, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's good stuff. So then in that. In that grand scheme of, you know, being broadly diversified and, you know, pursuing the whole ETF macro strategy, right, what is your take on, you know, like, things like crypto, you know, things like, you know, the whole, like, disruptive space? Yeah, so I study a
2: lot of economics, especially Mm. monetary economics. Yeah. So I I know a lot of people like to speculate in uh, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, (laughs) Litecoin, Mm and I don't know, so many different names. yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Any names that you can think of. We can start a
1: coin tomorrow, so if you want.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So um, the long story short, for any form of money, it has to satisfy a few characteristics. First of all, the value of the money must be relatively stable just imagine you know this bitcoin where the value keeps changing day from day you know today if you use one bitcoin maybe you can buy 10 apples tomorrow you might buy 15 apples and the following day you might only buy five apples using the same bitcoin Mm. is this the kind of money that we want Mm. that's not going to be very visible right
1: in our in our context. Mm, it'd be too exciting buying a cup of coffee. It's like, oh, auntie, <laughs> what, auntie? Whoa, very
2: expensive? <laughs> yeah. So- <laughs> you, you, you thought you could, you could have bought that coffee, right? And then the next moment, while the auntie is, you know, making that yeah, coffee. Making the change with you. <laughs> oh, too bad. Bitcoin has removed. Yeah. I can't serve you that coffee, mm-hmm. man. I can only mm-hmm. serve you half the cup. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. Mm. So that's,
2: yeah, that's not good uh, as a form of money. And as a store value, you know, it is also not good because mm-hmm. it keeps fluctuating right you don't mm-hmm. want to you don't want your wealth to fluctuate like that you know because there's no science behind it mm-hmm. today it could be you know worth 100 dollars tomorrow it could be worth 50 dollars and if you're on the wrong timing you know it can be very disastrous mm-hmm. yeah um, then the yeah because last...
1: because that is the other side of the discussion right where you're not people are not some people are saying oh maybe crypto is not a you know form of money it is a form of asset it's a it's, a, it's like a goal, right like like bitcoin is like digital goal, right so so your take is that it's too volatile to be gold in that sense
2: yes and of course the other thing about investment asset class right those that can be fundamentally valued are the ones with some form of cash flows. For example, if you look at stocks, these companies, these listed companies, they make profits and they distribute these profits as dividends. Mm. So because of these cash flows, you can reasonably value the stocks. Take for example, um, if AutoWealth were to be listed. Mm-hmm. You know, and each year- I, is,
1: that, is that like a signal? Are you dropping a signal? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, we get there someday? okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So s- take for example, if AutoWealth distributes $1 dividend per year, you know, reasonably speaking, uh, you wouldn't want to buy Autowell shares when it's trading at $100. Mm. Because it would take you 100 years to get back the investment that you have made Mm. by investing $100 onto the share price, right? Um, But if I were to say that the Autowell share price is about $20, Mm. you will feel that it's somewhat reasonable because within 20 years, you recover back your investment and anything beyond 20 years, each year, you will be making pure profits on it. Yeah. So there's some form of logic behind how a share price can be uh, fundamentally derived. The same goes for bonds. You know, there's a bond coupon or in simple English, interest that mm-hmm. you receive by holding that bond. So because of these cash flows, you know how much you're willing to pay for the bond. Mm. Yeah. Because if the interest is too low, you will say, now, I'm it's not interesting to me at all. Mm. I don't want to invest. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Then naturally, there's not enough buyers. You know, people, the they bond price will go down because of demand and supply and the yield will start increasing until a value where it's reasonably appealing. You know, then people start buying it again. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So bonds and stocks, you know, they tend to have fundamental value because of these cash flows. If you look at things like commodities, gold, it doesn't give you anything <laughs> um, other than you know the glittering yellow. You know when you look at it, you feel psychologically shook about it. Mm. But else not, it doesn't give you any monetary value at all. Mm. And we can argue until the cow come home whether gold <laughs> should be valued at one thousand US dollars, two thousand US dollars, or ten thousand US dollars. Everybody can you know make a three-page long pitch page about it. Mm. What kind of price it should be. And the same way goes for Bitcoin, right? Mm. Yeah, because these are all pure speculation. Mm. I mean, I would rather go to a casino and derive, you know, Mm. some uh, excitement.
1: Mm. Yeah. Okay, okay, fair. So, essentially, you are classifying assets where they are all like cash flow generation. So, there's some sort of cash flow calculation that you can, you know, underpin to it, like bond stocks, like property, you know, those kind of stuff yes it needs to be scientific yeah okay so there must be some sort of underlying scientific cash flow calculation in that sense and then there are all these other things like gold like bitcoin like art pieces (laughs) (laughs) like nfts right like tulips (laughs) used to buy condos (laughs) the dutch tulip crisis right And, and okay so so those things are to you you will not touch them at all
2: yes that's our philosophy
1: Okay, okay. So then when we, when we talk about like, you know, cash flow and bonds and all those kind of stuff, right? I think there is a recent topic about like bond yields rising or there's this general fear. Okay, so people kind of tie it up, right? Like inflation, bond yield, then stock market movement. It's like as though it's a very clean thing. But I want to hear like from your perspective, you know, what is going on, you know, with all these kind of movements in the market?
2: Yeah. Uh, for the layman out there, when we say uh, rising yields, you know, it sounds positive, right? Rising yeah, yeah, it is, sounds, it, like it sounds positive, very positive. Like make more money, right? Yes. <laughs> um, but in, in actual fact, right, how did it happen? It happens when people sell bonds. When the prices of bonds goes down, the yield goes up. Mm. Yeah. So the reason why people are concerned is because of these uh, overselling of bonds, you know, pushing the bond price down. And this happens... Because the markets are seeing that our economic recovery is on solid footing. Mm. And this is, by and large, truly factual. Mm. If you, for example, look at uh, the unemployment uh, situation, um, if you look at r- the increase in wages, if you look at you know, the overall economic growth, corporate earnings growth, we all know that the economic recovery is getting on very solid footing. Uh, One statistic that a lot of people don't know is that if we look at fourth quarter 2020, corporate earnings um, of the S&P 500 largest companies, they are almost 4% higher than the year before, Mm. which means fourth quarter of 2019. Mm. Mm. What this means is that corporate earnings have went way above
1: what it used to be pre-COVID. Mm. Market so, market cap weighted is this market cap weighted? Um, no, we are just looking. Just like at all the companies yes, add together. Okay, yes. okay.
2: It's not market cap weighted. Okay, yeah. So what this tells us is that by and large, the overall uh, industries and economy has already grown way above what we used to be pre COVID. Mm. So we are we are growing quite well today. Mm. Yeah, and that you know that truly reflects why bond prices start coming off because mm. people are going risk on. Okay. Yeah? Because on solid economic footing,
1: you want to take risk. Okay. Yeah? But however... Yeah, that's the thing, right? Like, why is the market coming down? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. So now people are concerned about, you know, uh, bonds being sold and the use driving up and concern about inflation. So I've addressed it. I've addressed inflation earlier on. Uh, while we see that inflation will eventually come on stream, but it's going to be slow and steady. It's not going to be a situation of runaway inflation. Mm. So I think the fears are overblown. Mm.
1: Why Uh, the confidence though? Why there's no risk of runaway inflation? Because
2: the central bankers, they have the best statistics (laughs) and they have the best people to analyze the economic indicators. Mm. Mm. So they know when to tighten and when to loosen it. Mm. Yeah, so I trust that they will do what is good, and uh, markets will not go into a tailspin. We will not see
1: runaway inflation. So you believe that we have already learned from our past lessons. That's right. Okay, so things will not repeat itself in that sense. That's right.
2: Okay. Okay. Yeah. And for all this hoo ha about rising bond yields, right? When we look at our portfolios, which also have government bonds, you know, after you see so much of gloomy headlines the actual impact is only a minus 3% on our government bonds. It is mm. insignificant at all. Mm, mm. Yeah. So I I really don't see a reason why people need
1: to be overly concerned about it.
2: Mm.
1: So then how does that translate to the market shock then? Like, you know, the, the S&P for like two weeks was like going a little bit. Volatility went up a little bit and, you know, like prices were moving and the headlines were tying to like increased bond yield and, you know, risk of inflation. So... Why? Why did the market shake like that then? Um, the true reason is that you know
2: statistically, each year we will see about three to four market corrections. Mm. This is this is normal. Mm. It's just like our weather, right? When you have you know very good weather for a persistent period of time, you are just waiting for the next storm to come. Mm. Yeah, and it is only natural. Our our nature works like that. You know, when you have good days, you will have some rainy days. You know, So it's a natural cycle. For the stock markets, it's about three to four times corrections in a year. The last time we have a market correction, that was the middle of October last year. Mm. So if you count the calendar months, mm. we are actually due for the next correction,
1: which is why that correction took place uh, in late February. Mm, okay, so indirectly, what you're trying to tell me is... Don't need to string everything together. <laughs> they, yes. they operate independently.
2: <laughs> yes. And often when mm. you have a market correction, then your news agencies and analysts start
1: searching <laughs> conveniently for a reason why. Yes, it, it my happens. God, that's so irritating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 it happens so often and it's just trying to get eyeballs, right? In, in that sense. Yes. Mm, how does how does that then you know affect your investment strategies then? Do you actively adjust your portfolio with this kind of like, you know, yield changes or like market corrections, you know? You know, how should people look at it? Because I think a lot of people, when they tune in, they're trying to learn from the pros, right? So that I, I want to hear from you guys, you know, given that bond yields are changing, you're given that market corrects from, you know, every, every quarter to quarter on or average three to four times a year, how do you guys, you know, look at that and adjust your portfolio or do you even do that?
2: Yeah, so we don't uh, actively and discretionarily adjust the allocations. But however, um, portfolio rebalancing is part of our investment strategy. Mm. So portfolio rebalancing means that when an asset class goes up too much, we will cut a little bit you know, and shift those funds into the asset classes that didn't do so well. So it's a reversion of mean theory. So, mm-hmm. take for example, you have the US-China trade war at the last quarter of 2018. Okay, During that period, stocks went into a tailspin. Uh, no matter which region you invested in, it declined about close to uh, I think 20-30%. But whereas, government bonds being uh, backed by the government, they kind of held their value quite well. Mm-hmm. So, as a proportion of the portfolio, the bonds became slightly larger than what was the original target weights. Mm. If you start off with a 60 stocks, 40 bonds portfolio, it could have become a 55, 45 portfolio. Mm. So all we need to do is to cut that extra weight in bonds and then shift those money to buy stocks while they are now precisely cheap.
1: Mm. Yeah. Okay.
2: So when the recovery eventually takes place, you have more stocks to enjoy this recovery. And then you reverse
0: again. Mm, mm, yeah, mm.
2: so this, this is being done to make sure that the risk profile is kept consistent. If the user wants a 60-40 portfolio, we try to maintain it 60-40, mm. you know, because this is the risk profile of the user. Um, but of course, by us selling high and buying low from time to time, we are locking in extra returns. Yeah. So the same case for the COVID pandemic, we have done the same. And because the COVID pandemic was more volatile, through this portfolio rebalancing, we managed to make about 4% extra returns.
1: Mm. Compared to the usual expected 8 to 9. Yes. Okay, that's pretty cool. That's a 50% higher than expected returns. Exactly. Right, that's cool. And so, last questions, right? After you, you shared all these different things, right? And all the, from the macro to the ETF to, you know, like, Uh, reverse to mean and all these kind of ideas. Under what scenario will you adjust your composition?
2: Our portfolio strategies are designed to last over many market cycles, over decades. So uh, from a design perspective right at the start, it is intended to withstand any change in market environment. Mm. So it works most of the time, there will only be limited windows where it doesn't work that well. But by and large, over a long period of time, you average it out, you will make decent profits. Mm. Yeah. So I don't think there will be ever a need for us to adjust our investment strategy as long as stocks and bonds remain the two largest asset class in the world. It has been the case for the last century. I believe it will be the same for the next century
1: cool thank you thanks for sharing Uh, appreciate your time thank you
0: I hope you learned something useful to today and truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with The Financial Coconut. Knowledge is that much more powerful and interesting when shared, debated and discussed. Join our community telegram group, follow us on our social, sign up for our weekly newsletter. Everything is in the description below. And if you love us, want we'll to help us grow. Definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. Also, if you have some interesting thoughts to share or know someone that you want to hear more from, reach out to us through hello at the financial Coconut.com. With that, have a great day ahead. Stay tuned next week we can always remember personal finance can be true, clear and sustainable for all.
1: Okay, I got some some questions for you and some things that we ask every single guest. Okay, so yeah. the very first question is what is a core life principle that you hold closely to?
2: One of those philosophies or principles that I hold closely is this Chinese saying uh, in Chinese language is called 敬人是听天命 mm. si, mm. So in everything we do, we want to make sure we do the best we can. Mm. But once you have done that, sometimes in reality, things don't work out the way you want it to be, right? <laughs> yeah. mm, mm. So we need to live happily, right? Let's not agonize over how the reality will be. Mm. As long as you have tried your best, you know, be mentally prepared that things do not turn out that well and just move on.
1: Nice, thanks. Um, next question. What is a personal finance advice that you feel needs to be further propagated?
2: It's really to focus on the big picture. Means... Uh, winning the war and focus less on nitty gritty (laughs) which is like the small little battlefields out there Mm. Um, all we need to do is to know which are the techniques that can more or less guarantee us that big success and forget about you know those stock picking market timing unless you are Warren Buffett or Mm -hmm. Josh Soros
1: Cool, job source <laughs> and number three last question is uh, which part of your life are you giving extra focus on now
2: I think right now we are um, we are focusing a lot about giving back to the society so take for example auto wealth uh, three years or I think two years ago we started a bursary called the auto wealth bursary so fund so cute <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So every year we support a financially needy student at the NUS Business School, where both me and my co-founder Noel Lee came from. So we will support a needy student with six thousand Singapore dollars mm. each academic year.
1: Nice, nice. I should, I should go back to school. <laughs> I <laughs> dropped off at NUS, but okay. Anyway, good stuff. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Awesome.